grimy and relentlessly downbeat fable that finally unfolded on screen seemed too slight aesthetically and morally to bear the weight of all those months of debate. Joker is a bad movie, yes. It's predictable, cliche, deeply derivative of other better movies, and overwritten to the point of self-parody. If a feature-length send-up of Joker was made, it's hard to imagine in what details it would differ from Joker itself. The experience of sitting through it is highly unpleasant, but that unpleasantness has less to do with graphic violence. There are only one or two scenes that go hard gore-wise than with claustrophobia and boredom. That's one of the best reviews you'll read about Joker. Dana Stevens uh, of Slate. Fantastic stuff. Couldn't agree more. Joker polarizing the nation. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. As always, please do subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. I can't thank you all enough. Man, such nice uh, reviews people were posting after uh, last week's episode about Irishman. If you haven't seen it yet, excuse me, haven't listened yet. Of course, you haven't seen it yet. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do uh, check us out. I went to in-depth, obviously, into the film and why uh, I appreciate it so much. Without any spoilers, of course, we don't want to spoil it for anybody. So please do check out that review uh, and all the other episodes and the fact we've had in the past, Utkarsh and Budkar, I'm in my own cabbie, I mean, there's plenty of other people there as well. And speaking of great guests, got a great one coming up today. As Rob Hart is going to join us, he is the author of a new book called The Warehouse. Uh, it's an excellent book. It's actually being made into a film, Ron Howard's company. So congrats to Rob. I mean, he's really uh, sticking the landing here. So congrats to him, and uh, we'll talk all about that. As far as the reviews, uh, thank you to Philly Steak 2323. This is where I find the movies I've missed or never would have heard about. Adnan's excitement and an unfettered enthusiasm is my favorite part. It's like listening to my friends talk movies. Thank you so much to Philly Steak. have one here from Eric Claxon. So good to have you back. Just finished listening to the episode on The Irishman. Your excitement and anticipation for this movie makes me want to see it immediately. I would have seen the movie regardless of your review. You've certainly portrayed this as a can't-miss. I love how you describe this movie as it pertains to the other Scorsese classics. Not a comparison, but how this film tells its own unique and melancholy story. I know the pod is dedicated to film, but it would be great to hear a top-to-bottom recap of the Bada Binge once you're done, even if it's just ranking or Mount Rushmore of your favorite seasons. Okay, I can do that for you, Eric. No problem. Probably got about six episodes left, by the way, of Bada binge as I looked ahead we're going to be talking about season six episodes four five and six from part one so yeah another six more weeks and uh, we'll get down to that one more here from Jeff Halliday as a listener unabashed fan must subscribe five tool player Mr. Virg shines as a film critic his industry acumen passion interview skill and relatability to fellow cinephiles always combines for a great listen I was inspired to post a review after terrific episodes featuring Utkarsh and Butkar and a wonderfully detailed review of his experience viewing The Irishman love the segments especially Bada Binge allows us all to relive an all-time great show. All right. So people love the Bada Binge. Good stuff there. Like I said, six more episodes. We'll keep it rolling. And um, by the way, I always like to pass along the love elsewhere. One of the podcasts I've been listening to is the New York Film Festival podcast. Uh, you can check that out. It's Film at Lincoln Center podca- podcast. Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Uh, NYFF, New York Film Festival. I listened to the Irishman podcast they did. Uh, some great tidbits there. I mean, Joe Pesci is always very terse. He's got nothing to uh, to say and doesn't really like talking to the media. De Niro tells stories about him and Marty trying to reconnect after years away from making Casino. Uh, it was just hard to try to find the right project for each of them, even though they tried. And then finally, the Irishman came together. And uh, Pacino was very interesting. He said that uh, he had met Scorsese years ago. They tried to make a film on Modigliani, actually. So he said for years they've been trying to make a movie. They couldn't get the budget there. And he said Marty met him in Beverly Hills eight years ago when he first pitched him on The Irishman. And uh, De Niro met with him as well. And Al said he was all in right away. But he said it was tricky doing the film because... In terms of shooting, he showed up after they'd already been shooting. So he, he equated it to kind of joining a film once you hit the ground running. And he goes, unless I had such 
immediate chemistry with Marty or with Bob or with Joe, you know, it wouldn't have worked. But he said, thankfully, those guys were so welcoming to me that once I showed up on set. And Scorsese told a good tidbit about Pacino, who was known for his research. He said whenever uh, he's playing a biographical character, it always is a huge benefit if the guy is still alive. You know, he's, he's said many a time in the case of Serpico, you know, he hung out quite a bit with Frank and wanted to learn as much about him. He'd ask him questions not even related to the script. He just kind of wanted to get a sense of the guy. He said that's a huge, huge resource to lean on. In the case of Hoffa, he said, again, it was so helpful because there's so much out there. He said, I could just watch clips all day. And Scorsese said on set, Pacino was known for always having earbuds in, and people thought he was listening to music. And Al laughed, said, no, I was listening to Jimmy Hoffa's voice. I just wanted to always get his voice in my ear and just the rhythms of the way he spoke. And certainly, if you watch the film, you can see the way Pacino, uh, he's still got his own accent in there, but the way he kind of mimics um, Jimmy Hoffa's accent as well. So definitely check out The Irishman. Speaking of the New York Film Festival, thank you to Mel B. Melanie Bialis, she's so nice. She's the one I sat next to for The Irishman. And when I was talking about Marriage Story and how I couldn't wait to see it, she said, well, I got an extra ticket for you. So I will review Marriage Story. I don't know if we'll do it next week. It's not opening until uh, December on Netflix. So I don't know if I want to give the review too early, but I will uh, definitely talk about that Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson film. It's excellent. And thank you to her for hooking me up with that ticket. Also, speaking of other podcasts, check out Mark Maron. As always, W2F is a fun listen, especially his latest guest, Danny DeVito, who loves New Jersey. I'm all in on Jersey now, and so is Danny DeVito. He tells great stories about growing up in Jersey and Jersey Shore and his old friends. And particularly what I loved about it is Mark Maron mentioned how much he loves Batman, as do I. And he's praising DeVito for his performance in Batman Returns. Was met with mixed reviews from critics, but DeVito said he loved playing the role. He really appreciated the fact that Maron loved him. And the way DeVito described it was it was a very operatic performance. He said Tim really let me kind of dive into the fact he's a Shakespearean character and I'm not a human being. I'm an animal and he's trying to find himself. And he said, actually, that's one of his, his favorite movies uh, of his own and a rather illustrious career. Also plenty of uh, Louis De Palma stories, of course, Taxi. Um, I wish that uh, actually DeVito talked about Hoffa, which is a film that I like and has uh, mixed reviews at best. I don't even know what the Rotten Tomatoes score is, but I'm sure it's not great, although I am one of those that like it. Uh, also, just want to mention The Hollywood Reporter, what a recent episode. Thanks, as always, to Kathy Leogrand, who hooks me up with the subscription. Tough times at the art house. Two summers ago, the top ten specialty titles took in a combined $130 million at the U.S. box office, led by hits The Big Sick and Wind River. This summer, that number tumbled 51% to $64 million, another stark reminder of the tough times facing the indie film business in this age of streaming and studio consolidation. Documentaries, Pavarotti, Biggest Little Farm, Echo in the Canyon were the stars of summer 2019, and while they didn't reach the same heights as last year, they impressed. On the narrative features side, The Farewell and The Peanut Butter Falcon, which is still early in its platform run, are modest box office hits in their own right. Late Night, however, was a major miss when it expanded nationwide. So The Farewell is really the only film that comes through $16 million. Uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, previous episode, we talked to Joe Talbot, the director. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. Only grossed $4.5 million. We also spoke in a previous episode to the director of The Art of Self-Defense. That was released through Bleecker Street. Only grossed $2.4 million. So that does depress me as a fan of independent cinema to see those films not doing so hot. Speaking of a film that did really hot, though, that would be Joker. And it is one of the most polarizing films of the year. It is truly a love-it-or-hate-it type of film. And I'm finding myself on the latter side of that ledger. I went into this, folks, expecting that it's going to be one of the best films of the year, and I could not wait for it. And I love the fact that, clearly, Todd Phillips is paying homage to Scorsese and uh, had said that Taxi Driver and King of Comedy were huge uh, references and reference points for him. 
But as I uh, tweeted in my review, I said Todd Phillips pays homage, and Aaron Charles is a good guy. He's a loyal listener of the podcast. He immediately corrected me in the tweet, said paid homage. I'd say derivative. I'm like, that's true. Todd Phillips is proving he's no Martin Scorsese. He's uh, making Taxi Driver King comedy without the intelligence and the wit and the subtlety. Now, the story is supposed to be this. Forever alone in a crowd, failed comedian Arthur Fleck seeks connection as he walks the streets of Gotham City. Arthur wears two masks, the one he paints for his day job as a clown and the guys he projects in a futile attempt to feel like he's part of the world around him. Isolated, bullied, and disregarded by society, Flack begins a slow descent into madness as he transforms into the criminal mastermind known as the Joker. Sounds great, but it's not. The first 30 minutes or so I enjoyed because... I can appreciate Lawrence Scher, the director of photography, clearly, again, uh, paying homage to, to Scorsese and Taxi Driver. Um, you literally, there's like a, you know, an adult movie theater they show in the early minutes. You see the garbage piling up. I mean, it feels like they're trying to evoke the Taxi Driver of the 70s. Um, but, you know, Taxi Driver, even though it's a very dark film and it's an urban nightmare, there's still moments of levity. Q. Albert Brooks, who is hilarious in the movie, talking about stool pigeons. There's still romance. You know, when Scorsese was feted by the uh, AFI with the Lifetime Achievement Award, Julia Roberts introduced a clip, and it's a wonderful clip, where Travis is first picking up Betsy. And it shows, you know, for a guy who doesn't always get a claim for having a, a playful touch, it's a really sweet scene. And the way that, you know, Travis picks her up, he says, you know, I think you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And he says when he's going to pick her up, and she says, I'm sure you'll be on time, and I'm sure you will. And it's a really nice scene. And, you know, even though you remember the fact that Travis has a mohawk and ends up gunning down a bunch of thugs there's moments like that and it's you know there's a glimmer of upside there's none of that here in joker i mean it is it is a relentlessly bleak thoroughly unpleasant film experience you know king of comedy has great humor in the movie i mean it's a really funny movie within the fact that rupert pupkin is a guy who is a very painful, isolated, self-loathing character, but it's still really funny. I mean, the fact he's so obsessed with Jerry Lewis, this talk show host, that eventually feels compelled to kidnap him. There's a dark undercurrent always, but there's some big-time laughs in the way that Rupert is just so delusional. In this film, though, there's none of that. I mean, it is just a painful experience. It's about as subtle as a sledgehammer to the groin. And even though Joaquin Phoenix is getting Oscar buzz, and, and I do think he's an excellent actor... I think the performance owes a little bit to his character in The Master. I kind of feel like it's a, you know, he's almost paying homage to that character. And listen, he's a talented guy, but it's also one of those performances that the Oscars love. I mean, they love these showy, uh, flamboyant performances. He's got a bunch of ticks. I mean, the overlapping, it's very flamboyant. It's not to say it's bad acting. It's just pointing out that the Oscars love this kind of stuff. So I don't even know if he deserves a Best Actor nomination, but I can guarantee he will get nominated for one. And he's certainly an intense actor and... Um, he gives his all to the role. There's no question about that. He, he is always mesmerizing in the role. But as Steve Parisman and Cabby tend to note the differences between my podcast and my Twitter, I was generous with the tweet, gave it two and a half Maple Leafs. That was right after I saw the movie. The more I've thought about it, I'm giving it only two Maple Leafs. Like I said, it, it's just too derivative and just too unpleasurable a film experience. And um, there's obviously other conversations about it. People are mentioning, you know, is it a commentary on mental illness and the fact that mentally ill people are being ignored? Is it a film that's inciting violence? I, I'm not focusing on that stuff. I, um, I'm i just talking about the film itself, and I don't think it's a particularly good movie. You know, Clockwork Orange had the same kind of debate as far as controversy of violence and, you know... Um, uh, Natural Born Killers, which is a film which I thought of a lot actually watching the movie, which I think is an excellent movie and I liked a lot. Owen Gleiberman, one of my favorite film critics, he championed Natural Born Killers. And unfortunately for me, he's actually championing Joker as well, although he wrote an excellent article in which he said everyone is, is very polarized by it. Maybe the most polarized film of the decade, he said. People are either loving or hating it. Um, made a ton of money, greatest October opening ever. In terms of Rotten Tomatoes, you know, this one, Best Picture at... Um, 
the Venice Film Festival, the Golden Lion, which means it could be an Oscar contender. But even a good article um, from THR and Scott Feinberg, he was saying that some voters have said, I don't know whether to give it every Oscar or to give it a Razzie. Like, that's that's exactly the way we're looking at with this film, because it is so polarizing and people are just walking out of there arguing about it immediately. In terms of um, Rotten Tomatoes, 60% is, um, you know, the average movie. Above that is above average. Below that is below average. It's only at a 69%, which you'd think for an Oscar contender, uh, for comparison's sake, Downton Abbey is at 85%. Even Hustlers is at 88%. Ad Astra is at 83%. So Joker's only at 69%, but audiences liked it. They gave it a 90%. So ultimately, it was not a film for me. It's not a film I would recommend. Joe, I don't know if you saw it, but the floor is yours. What say you? And and I was going to go see it until you told me... Um just how bleak and unpleasurable it was. And I was going to see it last night, and I thought I don't really need to. If it's gonna, just going to be that dark, I'm sure Joaquin Phoenix is really, really good in it, but if it's just someone falling down a staircase in slow motion for two hours, I'm just like, I, I got my baseball team to do that. I don't, I don't, I don't, need, uh, I don't need to watch that in the th- cinema for two hours. Yeah, absolutely right, Joe. I mean, there's just nothing. As I said, you think of a dark movie you love, and obviously you're as big a movie lover as I am. There's still moments of levity. There's still moments of light amidst the darkness and the commentary the film is making. This isn't that. This is just one punch after another. I'm like, I, I don't understand why anybody would want to see the film. And I think that, like I said, Todd Phillips really missed the point. If you're going to make a film like this, you've, you've got to have, you know, this character arc. You know, we're going to talk to Rob Hart and mention his book, The Warehouse. I wrote a book as well. It is as yet unpublished, but it is a baseball book. And one of the, the, the great gifts that Josh Getz, my literary agent, gave me was, you know, it focuses on a player in a slump. And what I was focusing on, at least my idea of the story was that, you know, what happens when a guy's in a slump? How does it affect him when the media's turning on him and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you know, nobody wants to read a book if the guy just goes over 32. Like, it's just, it's one steady line of the guy going down. you got to have a moment where he hits a home run. He's going to walk off one game. He's going to have a big stolen base. And then you can go back to what you're focusing on, which is the psychological dilemma of how the slump affects him. But you got to have some ups and downs. And that's what I kept thinking about with Joker. I said, you know, there's, there's nothing ever fun or redeemable about this guy's life. It's just relentlessly bleak. And, you know, a character arc would have, okay, a couple of moments of upside, a couple of moments that he can peek through and see some glimpse of humanity. But no, he's laughed at, he's ridiculed, he punched, he finally acts out his violent urges and feels some sort of release, and that causes him to do more. I mean, it's just... Like you said, Joe, if you want to get depressed, you can just watch your twins. I wouldn't recommend the film to many people. All right, I'll just wait till it's on VOD and I'll give my review of it in six months. So we'll, <laughs> in the springtime when the sun is shining and baseball season's back upon us, that's when I'll have my review for The Joker. Everyone knows how much I revere De Niro. Listen, it's a small role, and I'll even be even more honest. I thought he was miscast. If you've ever seen Robert De Niro on a talk show, you know that is not where he shines. And picturing him as an actual talk show host, I felt was tough to buy. Although, again, I appreciated the fact they were clearly making homage to can comedy. I, I cannot ever imagine Bob in the three scenes where I see him, you know, acting as if he's Colbert or something. It didn't, didn't really work for me. Mark Maron, I mentioned him, by the way, he has a small cameo in the film. Uh, more to the point, Todd Phillips seems like a very annoying guy. He basically said he stopped making comedies because of woke culture, which credit to Marin, who's in the film, he blasted him on his podcast. He said, listen, anybody who says that is just lazy. Like, you're just not very good at comedy if you're just complaining and saying, oh, it's because of the PC culture now that I can't do comedy. Really? Well, maybe you should work harder. Maybe you should try to get some better jokes and figure out a way to do it. Because anybody, people just try to blame society or blame audiences or woke culture. I mean, to me, it just sounds like a cop-out. Uh, that is my thoughts on Joker. Like I said, we'll talk about other movies coming up, including Marriage Story, which 
really enjoy. But one of the major stories of this week, in fact, is my hero, Martin Scorsese, pissing off the entire world. I loved it. Oscar-winning auteur and director of The Irishman is not a fan of the superhero genre, specifically Marvel movies. He was asked in an interview with Empire Magazine specifically if he's caught with the Marvel movies, and though he watches a lot of films, Scorsese said he wasn't able to make it through all 23 MCU titles. I tried, you know, Scorsese said, but that's not cinema. He compared the feelings they create more closely to theme parks than an actual movie. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well made as they are with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. So now everyone's pissed off. Now everyone's upset. Oh, everyone's feelings are hurt. James Gunn is now tweeting, oh, no, you hurt my feelings, Marty. You know, I, I supported Last Temptation of Christ when people are blasting you, and now you're judging my film without seeing it. No, I'm an auteur. No, you're not James Gunn. You're not Martin Scorsese. The, the day that Martin Scorsese, you know, forgets one-tenth about cinema will be more than the rest of us ever know about cinema. This is a guy who's championed movies all over the place. Listen to the interview I did with Ben Mankiewicz. As Ben correctly pointed out, he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, yet his lasting contribution will be towards film preservation and cinema. He knows more than any of us will ever know. So if it's his definition of cinema, guess what? I'll go with the goat. I'll, I will trust his opinion on this one. And that does not mean you can't not love Logan or love Guardians of the Galaxy or Spider-Man or the Spider-Verse. There's tons of good movies, but I understood his point, which is that, yeah, that fits within a superhero genre, and a lot of these movies are crassly commercial, and they're doing it to satiate people's interests. Um, and that's fine. It's going towards marketing and merchandising, and they're movies. Those are movies, and some of them are really good movies, and some of them are atrocious movies. And why is anybody surprised that Martin Scorsese wouldn't want to watch Aquaman? Like, are you kidding? I, I went and saw him speak for an hour. You know what he talked about? Classic films of the past. He talked about Val Luton. Go look up Val Luton. Uh, as Matt Zoller cites points to, who's a great critic, it's so upsetting that people are trying to call Scorsese an elitist. I'm like, are you kidding? Go look up Val Luton's movies. It's not exactly Ingmar Bergman or Fellini or Kurosawa. He made B-movies in the 40s and 50s that Scorsese's championed. You know, he loves Duel in the Sun, this classic Western. He's, he's mentioned plenty of movies that are not, you know, Oscar contenders. He will support films of all ilk. In fact, in the conversation which he had at the New York Film Festival, he was praising Ari Aster. Uh, he did, said he had not seen Midsommar yet, but he loved Hereditary. And in fact, he showed two clips from Hereditary. Uh, it's the scene where Tony Collette is first getting a little bit unnerved, and she gets upset with her son. And he, he literally, Marty's breaking down the shot composition, the eeriness of it, and he was like, man, I don't know... A lot of these guys, but this guy Ari Aster is pretty good. So Hereditary, that what was that? That's a commercial film. That's a box office film. It meant to, you know, um, obviously make some money, and, and he supported that. So I, I'm completely with him, Joe. I know you like superhero movies, so I'm guessing you're going to be upset. But I, I, this, those are the two takeaways for me. One, I saw he was trending, and I was terrified. My heart fell. Thankfully, he didn't. I'm like, oh, good. Marty's just, you know, it's like Revenge of the Nerds right now on Twitter. Everybody's so sensitive, blasting off on him. Like, oh, this old farts, jealous of movies don't make money? Trust me. The day that Martin Scorsese says he cares about commerce will be the first day of our lives. He, he could only care about money in one respect, which is, can I make the next movie? Right? I think he was upset that Silence didn't make more money because then it was harder for him to make the next movie, which was The Irishman. He couldn't get it done at a major studio. I don't think he gives one bleep and you know what about how much his movie grosses. Wolf of Wall Street made $414 million worldwide. Awesome. That means I get to make another movie. That's the way he approaches these things. So anybody trying to call him out as an elitist or saying he's jealous of the money these movies make, trust me, you're missing the point. In his viewpoint, and he's a guy, again, who knows more about movies than any of you will ever know, as a emotional, psychological experience to another human being that's his definition of cinema for him it doesn't work and as sam jackson said yeah some people don't like his movies right he was like oh, listen some italian americans don't like his portrayal although of course sam jackson's just upset joe because stacks got killed by joe pesci and goodfellas that, that's what <laughs> that is emanating from 30 years ago your thoughts 
Yeah, I just I wonder what people think. Like James Gunn, for example. Let's look at Guardians of the Galaxy and let's look at Taxi Driver. Are people going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy in the same way that they do Taxi Driver now? And the answer is no. I rewatched that movie recently. It was it was fine, but it already looks dated. It already looks the green screen technology, all of that doesn't hold up like a movie like Taxi Driver or Raging Bull. And, you know, there is a place for theme parks. There is a place for roller coasters. But more often than not, Adnan, I just love a scenic drive. And I feel like that's what Martin Scorsese gives me. He just gives me a beautiful car ride. Right on, Gerald. I love that analogy. That's excellent. That's uh, putting it much more uh, succinct than I did, but I couldn't agree more. Uh, one other story which is interesting here before we get to our guest, Rob Hart, Brendan Gleeson and Jeff Daniels. Those guys are going to be playing, respectively, Trump and James Comey in an upcoming miniseries. Thanks to our friends at Entertainment Weekly, EW.com, the stars of Harry Potter and The Newsroom playing Trump and James Comey. This is a four-hour miniseries in the works by CBS Studios. Michael Kelly, you know him from uh, House of Cards. He's also in the film. So it's based on Comey's best-selling book, Higher Loyalty. Billy Ray, who wrote Captain Phillips, adapted the book, will direct the untitled miniseries. Currently has no air date or home. It could end up on Showtime or CBS All Access. Uh, Comey served as the FBI director from 2013 to 2017. So curious to see how this is going to unfold. But Ray did say in a statement, Jeff is so perfect for this part. Great actor, instant integrity, loads of warmth. We talked backstage after I saw him in To Kill a Mockingbird. I knew I was looking at the only person who could play Jim Comey. Lucky for me, he said yes. And then Gleason, who is currently starring in Audience Network's Mr. Mercedes, um, imagine him playing Donald Trump. He's certainly got uh, presence, and he's very dynamic. I loved him in Gangs in New York, playing the good guy who uh, Daniel Day-Lewis bludgeons to death and then says, why don't you put him on fire see if his ashes turn green because he's tired of all these Irishmen. But interesting, Joe, we get to Trump. I wouldn't say the big screen, but we are going to see him here in a miniseries. Yeah, and I think that even with the elections in 2016, a lot of people in the back of their mind thought, all right, who who's going to play Trump when the inevitable movie or miniseries comes out? I love this casting, though. I agree that Jeff Daniels, all his roles are amazing. He's going to knock this role out of the park. And Brendan Gleeson, I, I think he's just going to do phenomenal in this role. My only restraint, and let me know what you think, is CBS doing this, how are they going to approach it? How much money are they going to put in? Is it going to look like a CBS network production, or will it be more gritty than that? So I, that's my only question. Yeah, that's a good point. I, when I saw CBS All Access, I know they put more money towards it, but you're right. It's not you know quite the same thing as what you've seen in the past. So I'm not totally sure. You're right. Is this going to be one of those real splashy movies, um, or is this going to be something a little bit more judicious about? That remains to be seen. Now, though, it's time to listen to our special guest. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Cloud isn't just a place to work, it's a place to live. And when you're here, you'll never want to leave. 
That's right. New book called The Warehouse. Check it out from Rob Hart. There's a little blurb for it. It's about corporate espionage at the highest level. Josh Getzler, my literary agent, and Rob's as well, sent it to me months ago. A little bit of chaos, unpacking boxes. Oh, yeah, let me finally read this book, and it's terrific. And it's a pleasure to welcome Rob to Cinephile today. Rob, thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You know, this book is one of those that uh, makes me think of a lot of other great books as well, which is a compliment to you and your style and your ambition that you're able to, you know, kind of match wits and do something that I think is very hard to do, which is you're calling to mind George Orwell and, you know, 1984 and Doublethink and all these ideas about, like I said, a company, and it's very forward thinking. You can definitely see this, whether or not it's Google or Apple or Facebook or one of these major conglomerates, and it's kind of inventing a, a new way of the world. Where did you, first of all, get the creativity for this kind of a story and place in terms of technology and that uh, sinister aspect that sometimes technology can present? Well, I mean, I can tell you the exact nexus point of the book, which was I read an article uh, years ago, back in 2012, in Mother Jones uh, by a journalist named Mac McClelland, who got a job in a fulfillment center. And she wrote about how terrible the conditions were and, and how hard it was to work there and how you could be penalized for calling out sick and, and all this stuff. And, you know, and, and still people were lined up around the block because they set up an economically depressed area. So it's, you know, you work for them or you work for nobody. And, and I, I had a very visceral reaction to that. I was like, there is a book here. And I just I, I sort of filed it away. And over the years, I would see things in the news and I'm like, you know, this feels relevant. This feels like it's, it's related to the book. I'm just going to keep on dropping these notes together. And then one day I just decided, you know, if I don't write this book, someone else is going to. Uh, I feel like this is sort of like the natural path of our economy to, you know, a place where we are completely and totally subservient to our jobs. And um, Gibson is very much in my mind, he's like a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos or a Sam Walton, you know. These guys who are like, hey, you know, I've done incredible things and I've changed the world and I'm a fantastic human being. And in reality, you know, they've all created systems that exploit their workers and, and you know, are, are, are not exactly the, the, the heroes that they, they like to think they are. Yeah, and I think that that's the accurate point is that it can be delusional because, again, it's it's all about grandeur. It's look at what I created, look what I've done, and okay, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, but look at the greater cause here. Again, specific to those guys, did you like look at headlines or look at articles and say, okay, this is um, the world of the tyrant, even though they don't uh, present themselves as such? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, I cracked Gibson's voice after reading Sam Walton's autobiography uh, because, you know, it's, 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 it's insidious, you know, because here's this guy who's like, you know, we're, my, we're all a family and we work really hard and, and, you know, I love my work family. And this is a guy who, when the federal minimum wage law was passed, took all his Walmarts and split them up into separate entities so that he wouldn't have to pay his empl employees minimum wage, which is not a nice way to treat your family. It's appalling to think that that's where, you know, big business is. Everything today, Rob, seems very political as well. And I don't think your book is necessarily political, but it's making, um, you know, points about the climate in which we live. Did you use at all today's politics, which is obviously very uh, divisive and passionate at all within the framework of the warehouse? I mean, not really, uh, because I really conceived of this back in 2012 when, when we didn't live in a world that felt like it was, you know, constantly on fire. But um you know, that there are a lot of problems uh, that I wrote about in the book that have existed for a very long time. You know, it's not like they're, they're suddenly new. I do think people are becoming more cognizant of these things. Uh, for example, the wage gap and the fact that, you know, people are literally killing themselves so that some CEO can have, you know, a seventh yacht or, or, or a fourth vacation home. 
you know, people are keying into things like that. And that's why I feel like had this book been on sub like three or four years ago, it probably wouldn't have had the same impact that it did uh, when it actually went out. We're talking to Rob Hart right now. The book is called The Warehouse. Take me inside the writing process, Rob. Um, you know, I watched uh, David Mamet when he was talking about writing. And he said, oh, it's very easy. You just sit at the typewriter, you know, cut open a wound and let it bleed. You know, you hear all yeah. these stories about writing and how challenging it can be. And then I've heard other writers, I think Frank DeFord, the, the famous sports writer, said, oh, you know, writers just like to be uh, whiners and self-pityers. You know, it's really <laughs> actually not as difficult as they make it out to be. Where are you on the scale of writing is the hardest thing in the world or it's um, – generally something that comes easy to you which one is it you know it, it's honestly it's it's kind of both of those things at the same time um you know my process involves a lot of drinking and a lot of crying but um <laughs> you know it, it's funny i and i said you know it, it took me years and years and years to actually crack this book and that was years and years and years of believing i wasn't smart enough to write it i wasn't a good enough writer that i couldn't find the access point and, you know, I sent the first section to Josh, uh, our agent, and he really liked it. And he was like, where's the rest? And I'm like, well, I haven't written it yet. And I wrote the rest of it in six months. Uh, and, and, and I think part of that is I used to be a journalist. So when someone gives me a deadline, even if it's an artificial deadline, I will hit it. Uh, I tend to work pretty fast. Uh, but also I, I had the luxury of having, you know, percolated with this thing for five or six years at that point. So it tends to be a very long drawn out process until I actually sit down and do the work. And, and then it comes relatively easily. Josh's assistant, we know Jonathan Cobb. I, I love the fact in the notes, you thanked him for giving you a critical note on the book without spoiling the plot for anybody who hasn't read the book. Can you tell me what the note was that he gave? <laughs> he, uh, the, 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 there was something he said about Gibson and, and that I just really, I was like, okay, you got it. I accomplished what I was set out to do. You totally got it. And I was so happy for that. John is such a, such a sharp guy. And, uh, you know, I, I feel very lucky to be working with Josh and John on this and everyone at Crown and Penguin Random House. It's been an absolute dream thus far. The, the book is terrific, Rob, but even more to the point is the fact that, you know, we're not going to see it on the big screen, which is amazing. I'm sure as a writer, you were just, you know, focusing on the craft of the book and hopefully it becomes a bestseller and anything else happens. It's a bonus. And the fact that now it's going to be made into a feature film and Ron Howard attached to it. Tell me about that entire journey and uh, how fulfilling that must be. Yeah, that's uh, it's still kind of bizarre to even talk about as like a real thing. You know, there, there's a part of me that feels like if I were to find out that is an elaborate prank, I would be really upset, but I would not be surprised. Um, you know, uh, I, I was in, so over the summer, I went to San Diego Comic-Con uh, to promote the book. And then I, I was talking to my contact there at Imagine, and they were like, well, do you want to drive up to L.A. for the day and come meet with the screenwriter? And I was like, yeah, you know, that'd be fun. And so I met with this guy and, and we talked a lot about the book and, you know, some of the changes that they would want to make, uh, none of which were offensive to me. And, you know, it was just just being in that room and, and not only not not only being there, but feeling respected and valued as, as a part of the process was just really, really gratifying to me. But, uh, you know, they also again, you know, they were pitching me on these ideas. They were like, you know, we want to tweak this. We want to change this. And I'm like, you know what? That sounds really exciting um, because at the end of the day, too, the book, the book is always going to be there. So it's, it's like I, I, I get to see someone else's artistic take on, on my work. You know, that, that's kind of rad. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's more than rad. Absolutely. Did you talk to, to Ron Howard specifically or has it been his production company or writers? How, have you spoken to him at all? Uh, I haven't spoken to him yet. Uh, unfortunately, when I was there for the meeting, he was just he was in Georgia. He was finishing up his latest movie, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. So they were close to the end of production on that. So, 
you know, uh, they're in post now. Um, so who knows? I mean, the, the script is supposed to be done in, you know, by the end of the year, I think. And then, you know, everything up and uh, after that is kind of up in the air and, you know, I've got my fingers crossed. Yeah, I read Hillbilly Elegy. It's an excellent book. I'm curious to see how Ron puts a spin on it, because that's a very personal memoir about uh, maybe a segment of the population we don't really appreciate as much as we should. Um, was there a chance, Rob, that you could adapt your book yourself? Was that, did they, hey, you can write the screenplay, or was it, yeah, that would have been great. Well, actually, uh, no, uh, I was terrified of that. Um, <laughs> it never it never really came up, uh, and, and I never really wanted it to. I have a buddy who works in Hollywood, and uh, he got the rights, he sold the rights for his novel, and, and, and he you know, he negotiated the rights to adapt it and then realized it was the biggest mistake he made. And, and he told me, he's like, you are the worst person to adapt your own book because you can't see past it. You can't see past the things that you're going to be precious about. You need someone else's spin on it. And at the same time, too, I don't know how to write a screenplay. And this is not the venue for me to be learning a new skill. Yeah, that's a fair point. You're right. As a writer, you got to know your strengths, know your limitations, and good for you for having that uh, kind of humility about it. Again, I don't want to spoil it. Everyone should read the book, The Warehouse, but I love that last line. I mean, you talk about a great last line um, without <laughs> saying it, but I just want to know, how long did it take you to come up with that? Even the last couple of pages, like how hard was it to kind of craft it? Because I really think in this kind of a book, Rob, espionage thriller, you really got to gotta stick the landing. You got to nail the ending, and you really did in this case. Well, uh, thank you. Um, I'm really glad to hear that. You know, the uh, the last chapter, uh, the form of it sort of got a little wonky at points. That there was there was definitely a lot of back and forth on tightening it up. But I think like the last three paragraphs are are exactly as I wrote them. And uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where it just kind of spilled out, and I was like, oh wow, like I think I actually nailed this one. <laughs> You more than nailed it, absolutely. It's a great book. Check out The Warehouse from Rob Hart. I appreciate the time. Before I let you go, I just want to know, other books out there, other books that inspire you? I always find uh, you know, one of the keys to being a great writer, as you know, is uh, being well-read. And even though I'm sure while you're writing, you don't have much time to read. But any other books you can recommend or perhaps uh, influences that you'd like to cite? Oh, man. You know, and, and this is always so hard because I can, I, I can literally do this all day. Uh, but, but I will give you my favorite book and then two books I read recently that I loved. Uh, my favorite book of all time is In the City of Shy Hunters by Tom Spanbauer, which is the best book that was ever written set in New York City. Uh, the two best books I've read recently are American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson and Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. Uh, the two of them, I think, are absolutely fantastic, and they're still going to be among my favorite books by the end of the year. Yeah, I remember the uh, Frank Langella movie starting out in the evening when she plays an author a few years ago. And it, there's a line about, do you, you know, do you worry about the way books will be read in the future? And he says, I just worry if books will be read at all. So I, I'm with you that as long as there's a, a strong group of us who are reading and passing along recommendations. And I, I think, uh, you know, to, to misquote Twain, the, the rumors of, uh, you know, books demise have been greatly exaggerated. I think there's lots of great writers out there and great books. And people still do read, just in different manners, of course, with Kindle and all the rest of it. But congrats on adding another terrific book to the palette. The Warehouse, currently available, and we'll look forward to the movie as well. Rob Part, really appreciate the time. Where can people find you on Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff? Uh, I am on the web at robwhart.com, on Twitter at robwhart, and then Instagram and Facebook are both robwhart1, because I guess someone else got there before I did. <laughs> Sometimes we get usurped. Great stuff, Rob. Thank you. All right. Thank you.
Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore Batman movies in honor of Joker, which is a film that I went into wanting to love and unfortunately didn't like it. Well, here's some options as far as the Mount Rushmore of Batman movies. I'll run them down quickly because maybe you even forget how many there are. Lego Batman movie, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, The Dark Knight Rises, The Dark Knight, Batman Begins, Batman and Robin, Batman Forever, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, the animated film, Batman Returns, Batman the Original, Batman the Movie 1966, and Batman and Robin 1949. So Mount Rushmore for me, you can't do better than The Dark Knight 2008, Christopher Nolan's neo-noir, which became an epic and gave us the best Joker ever. Heath uh, Heath Ledger, obviously, uh, winning an Oscar for his performance, critically acclaimed as Joker. I love the original Batman, Tim Burton's from 1989, Jack Nicholson doing a very different Joker. Obviously much more funny and goofy, but still very entertaining. I just love Michael Keaton as Batman, which leads me to Batman Returns. That's right. I know not many people like it. I'm one of those that love it. Me and Mark Maron. I love Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman and Danny DeVito as Penguin, this great tragic figure that's got wonderful music, as always, from Danny Elfman. Uh, incredible cinematography. Again, that was dark, but dark in a different way. Gothic. It wasn't uh, nihilistic like Todd Phillips' film. I thought it was a beautiful kind of sleek darkness to the movie. Christopher Walken, also very entertaining as Max Shrek. Those are the three there for me and one more of course my favorite Batman my man Will Arnett let's go Lego Batman movie from 2017 there's my Mount Rushmore of Batmans you Joe well I gotta start out with the uh, original with the 1966 Batman the movie which features the greatest line in all of cinema some days you just can't get rid of a bomb as uh, Batman's walking down the pier with a lit bomb it's so comical and the thing I really appreciate about that movie compared to all the uh, ones now it is funny it is supposed to be a comedy all the other ones have hints of comedy but this was an actual comedy uh, i'm also going to go with batman 1989 danny elfman prince tim burton then the dark knight just heath ledger's performance in that being so incredible and then i'm going to go with batman begins the other christopher nolan uh, start to that trilogy i thought that that was a pretty great origin story for batman compared to past origin stories so those are my four yeah, Batman Begins, probably in some ways underrated, Joe. You're right. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I'd like to revisit it because you're right. The fact that no one, everyone points to Dark Knight, but he kind of, you know, he reinvented it or he set the template, so to speak, with Batman Begins. So good picks there. As always, you can tweet us, CinephilePod or Adnan S. Ferk. Let us know where we aired. Let us know what you agree or disagree with when it comes to our Mount Rushmore. The Bada Binge. All right, we continue right now with The Bada Binge. That's right, The Sopranos now up to season six as we go through episodes by episode. This is episodes four, five, and six. Once again, using as a resource, wonderful book from Matt Zollersites and Alan Seppenwall. We focus in on season six, episode four. Here we got Polly Walnuts, one of his best episodes. He finds out that his dying nun he thought was his aunt is really his biological mother. Nucci, the aunt who took him in to protect her sister's reputation. Uh, he responds with absolute rage. He blames his own mother for the crime of raising him, and it just shows what a vile human being he is. Uh, later on, as Tony's still healing, he's inspired by the Ojibwe saying, Sometimes I go about in pity for myself, and all the while a great wind carries me across the sky. You also get a cameo from Hal Holbrook, legendary character actor known for playing Deep Throat 
and all the president's men. Uh, you've got kind of Tony's resurrection here in this episode. I didn't think it was a strong one, but you do see him talking uh, to a minister and, you know, at least trying to get some sort of sense of closure and realizing that, yes, after he was shot, he's been given a new chance at life. He should embrace it. We then get to Mr. and Mrs. John Sacrimony request. Really good episode. Episode five of season six. It's directed by Steve Buscemi and it's written by Terrence Winter. Uh, in this episode, John loses face with his men by crying while the federal escorts uh, cuff him in front of the guests. You got Tony worrying that he looks too weak after the wedding. And you got Vito at a leather bar where he's gone to exercise the feelings from a day when he was deep in heterosexual cosplay. How about that writing from Matt and Alan? The scene at the bar unfortunately winds up evoking a different Al Pacino movie, their cartoonishly homophobic 1980 thriller Cruising, with the image of Vito in leather gear designed to make him look silly after the rest of this season had so effectively made him a dark, complex figure. I disagree with the guys here on that. I actually think it's a funny moment because you go, oh my God, Vito is at this wedding where he's looking to be so composed and a family man. It's just such a jarring scene when you see him so happy and dancing. Cruising's not great. I don't know if I would call it cartoonishly homophobic. I would disagree with that assessment. I thought it was a mixed bag, personally. Billy Freakin' directing. Uh, the episode does have the great song, The Three Bells by the Browns, which they use as a motif here for Vito. And also the episode in which John is giving away his daughter, referencing the famous Godfather wedding sequence several times, most notably repeating the idea that a mafia don has to grant favors on the day of his daughter's wedding. How smart are Matt and Alan here with the footnote, an oblique Godfather reference perhaps, the episode ending song is Every Day of the Week by the students, which runs through the names of the days in the proper order rather than Apollonia. Let's remember Apollonia saying Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, Saturday. That's very smart. Those guys picked up on that, by the way. Also, Carmela, when she picks up the star ledger from the end of the driveway, the headline says, Cushy Psych Lockup for Don Squirrelioni. A reference there to Uncle Junior and the fact he's now lost his mind. Later on, you know, Tony realizes he can only trust these guys so much. You know, he says when it comes to the rest of the mob, when he's telling Melfi, they think you're weak. They see an opportunity. They're my friends, a lot of them, but they're also effing jackals. And that's why he takes out his muscular new driver, Perry Annunziata, who was first runner-up Mr. Teenage Bloomfield. Perry makes an easy target not only because he's an overgrown kid with biceps, but no street smarts. He's also the only guy hot-headed enough to fight back briefly, making Tony's victory seem more impressive. Tony lays a beatdown on him for an invented reason, then acts as if long enough to make it to the bathroom, where he pays the price for taxing his injured body by retching into the toilet. By the way, Tony's got a great one-liner, too, and he sees Melfi. He says, so let me ask you right off, is there any chance of a mercy... Yeah, that's right. And she just laughs it off and says, no, no, we're not going to do that. But thank you, Tony. Good to see you healthy again. One more episode to discuss here. Season six, episode six, Live Free or Die. Now Vito realizes he's in trouble. This is actually one of the most entertaining episodes of the entire series. It's written by David Chase, Terrence Winter, Robin Green, and Mitchell Burgess. Very rare to get all four of those writers. But now they all find out that Vito is gay. Vito's out of the closet. He's on the run. And so you get lots of great one-liners here. Uh, Christopher and Tony insisting they knew that Vito's secret. Tony's panic of whether Melfi believed he slept with men in jail. Polly's disgusted reaction to the full Vito story. How much more betrayal can I take? And also Christopher rationalizing that his Arab clients can't be terrorists because one of them owns a Springer Spaniel. Later on, Tony even tries to defend the fact maybe one of his guys is gay. It's 2006. There's pillow biters in the special forces. But the rest of these guys view homosexuality as a graver sin than shooting a guy and grinding him up. 
Even later on, Chris's midlife crisis, come on, what could this possibly be? Even later on, Phil breaks in bad news to Vito's wife. Having heard Finn's account of Vito and the security guard, he sounds like a prosecutor. The witness has no reason to lie. And of course, Phil Leotardo, played by the great Frank Vincent, knows now that Vito is, in his words, a pillow biter, now that he knows he's gay, he's going to have to kill him. And Vito now on the run. You see him in the fictional hamlet of Dartford, New Hampshire. It's filled with bourgeois gay men. He's checking out antique shops. You finally see that Vito appears to be at ease, but even he must realize he's in trouble now, and that's why he's on the run for his life, trying to reinvent a new life for him. Will the gangsters and the Soprano mob be able to find him, and will Tony be able to vouch for him and save his life? That remains to be seen. We'll discuss that in the next episodes of The Bada Binge. As always, thank you so much for listening. Check us out Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to my man Joe. This is Adam Ambrook. Until then, I will see you at the movies. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.